Good morning and uh, a very warm welcome. It all seems a bit odd now that I've gone to welcome you, but um, anyway. Uh, welcome to all those who uh, have come this morning for our time of worship, the time when we acknowledge the worth of one another, of ourselves and of all creation. It's nice to be back. We begin by our chalice lighting the symbol of our worldwide liberal faith. Oop, there it is there. <laughs> May the light we now kindle inspire us to use our powers to heal and not to harm, to help and not to hinder, to bless, and not to curse, and to serve you, Spirit of Freedom. And some opening words from Jacob Trapp. To worship is to stand in awe under a heaven of stars, before a flower, a leaf in sunlight, or a grain of sand. To worship is to be silent, receptive, before a tree astir with the wind or the passing shadow of a cloud. To worship is to work with dedication and with skill. It is to pause from work and listen to a strain of music. To worship is to sing with the singing beauty of the earth. It is to listen through a storm to the still small voice within. Worship is a loneliness seeking communion it is a thirsty land crying out for rain. Worship is kindred fire within our hearts. It moves through deeds of kindness and through acts of love. Worship is the mystery within us reaching out to the mystery beyond. It is an inarticulate silence yearning to speak. It is the window of the moment open to the sky of the eternal. So come. Let us worship. I'd like to gather all these thoughts and prayers into the words of the Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh. Let us be at peace with our bodies and our minds. Let us return to ourselves and become holy ourselves. Let us be aware of the source of being common to us all and to all living things. Evoking the presence of the great compassion, let us fill our hearts with our own compassion towards ourselves and towards all living beings. Let us pray that we ourselves cease to be the cause of suffering to each other. With humility, with awareness of the existence of life and of the sufferings that are going on around us, let us practice the establishment of peace in our hearts and on earth. Amen. The uh, first reading uh, that I'd like to share with you this morning uh, is taken from a book by an American Benedictine nun, Joan Chich Chichester, uh, it's the well, it's the rule of Saint Benedict, but it's her commentary on it. Um, here's a here's a picture of Joan Chichester. Uh, she's um, been a, a Benedictine nun 
since she was 16, entered the monastery in 1952, and um, it's, her life has changed a lot over those 60 years. Um, but she's an amazing woman who's done a lot to bring Benedict's message to the world and to stand up for the rights of the oppressed and especially uh, to stand up for the, the place of women in the Roman Catholic Church. So this is uh, from her book, uh, Reflections on the Rule of St. Benedict. The rule of Benedict is not historical literature, it is wisdom literature. In the second place, it teaches what this world, what every culture needs most, especially perhaps in our own time. Wisdom literature endures precisely because it is not the history of a particular people. It is not the codification of the ethical mores of a single culture. It is not the teachings of science. It is not, in fact, devoted to the presentation of any particular bon body of knowledge. Wisdom literature takes as its subject matter the meaning and manner of achieving the well-lived life. It deals with the spiritual, the ascetic, the divine and the nature of virtue. Its concern lies in the meaning of holiness and the fundaments of happiness. Wisdom literature is common to every great tradition. It lifts the spiritual life from the legal to the mystical, from theology to spirituality, from a study of the nature of religion to the depths of the personal spiritual life. In Hinduism, the basic outlines of the spiritual life are found in texts like the Upanishads, in Buddhism, in the Dhammapada, in Judaism, in the books of Proverbs and Job, of Ecclesiastes and Wisdom, in Islam, the writings of the Sufis, and in Christianity, the writings of the desert fathers and mothers. Out of wells of wisdom like these have sprung the teachings of the great mystics and spiritual directors of every age and every tradition. It will not be surprising then to find that there are bits of wisdom from all of these sources included in this commentary, in this presentation of the Rule of Benedict, a work of ancient Western wisdom literature where the concerns of every tradition meet. Some thoughts from Joan Chittister. The uh, second reading is actually a book by Tom Roberts um, on Joan Chittister, uh, but this is uh, some of her own thoughts, which he quotes in the book. That day was the day I began, I began the conscious, perilous journey from religion to spirituality, from the certainties of dogma to that long, slow, personal journey into God. Religions, as she writes, are intended to lead us to the divine, and along the way they provide a kind of landmark. We can see the cross, or the star, or the lotus, or the half-moon before us, calling us on. Or we sense that they are behind us, calling us back. Or we come to feel that they are beside us, giving us strength, as we go with their definitions and boundaries and traditions. Religion is meant to bring us to spirituality, she says, but spirituality brings people to religion as well. Each serves the journey to a life with God who is greater than religion, 
and the spiritual within us that calls us to the deep conscious living of a spiritual life. God is the question that drives us beyond facile answers, the invisible vision that drives us to the immersion of the self in God. It has been said that the best way to learn something is to have to teach it. And although um, I knew something about St. Benedict and his rule and his spirituality, uh, it wasn't until I had to prepare to give a talk uh, on his message for today that I rediscovered him and was amazed at how relevant his message still is. The talk uh, was to a group of oblates of Edgware Abbey in North London, uh, oblates are ordinary men and women who, though not monks or nuns, live lives inspired by the message of St. Benedict and are affiliated to a particular monastery or abbey. So I was quite apprehensive as these people probably knew more about St. Benedict than I did. Edgware Abbey is a, an Anglican community that was founded 150 years ago in Shoreditch to nurse the poor and the handicapped. Today, there are only two nuns left, but they still run, staffed by nurses and care assistants, a state-of-the-art, 30-roomed nursing home catering for both long-term and terminally ill patients, inspired by Benedict's vision of hospitality for all and seeing the divine spark in all people. This isn't the talk that I gave to them, uh, but it's, it inspired me uh, with some thoughts to share with you this morning. So who was St. Benedict and what is the message of his rule? Benedict was born in 480, so 1500 years ago, in Nursia, about 70 miles north of Rome, and died in 547. The world into which he was born was violent and chaotic. The fall of Rome in 410 was just 70 years before his birth and had shocked the civilized world. Invading tribes from the north brought the official end of the Western Empire in 476, just four years before he was born. So it was into this chaos that Benedict brought a sense of order and balance. He came from a, a fairly wealthy family and was sent to study in Rome but he soon dropped out of college, nothing new there, and wanted to lead a more spiritual life. And a bit like the historical Buddha, Benedict initially lived a very austere life, but eventually advocated a middle way. And although he's often called the father of Western monasticism, monastic life had been around for about 300 years, and other rules from monks had been written. Benedict drew much of his rule from a rule called the Rule of the Master, written several years previously. But interestingly, he removed the material that didn't follow his view of community and leadership, or that he considered too punitive. And he offered a more moderate approach, adding new material he felt was important, such as the quality leaders of the monastery should possess. I'll look, I'll look a little bit later at what he says about the role of the abbot. Benedict's main message was to find God, or the divine, by being in relationship with one another, by just living in community. To achieve holiness, 
by being normal. Benedict was, of course, writing as a Christian and saw his relationship with the divine through the Christian story. But as Joan Chittister reminded us, the rule is part of wisdom literature that is common to every great tradition. It lifts the spiritual life from the legal to the mystical, from theology to spirituality, from the study of the nature of religion to the depths of the personal spiritual life. And just a little comment for those of you who might not be too keen on the idea of rule and see rules as oppressive and stunting free thinking. I was surprised, I probably shouldn't have been, but I was surprised to find that the, the term rule comes from the Greek term canon, which originally meant trellis. I think this is a wonderful image. A trellis is a tool, if you like, that helps a grapevine or other plants to become more productive. Without it, the branches of the vine or the plant will grow into a tangled mess and bear less fruit. So we need a structure to guide our lives so that we can be fruitful in our spiritual life. I'm reminded of a, a friend of mine who had a, a poster in his downstairs toilet which said, what we need are spiritual fruits, not religious nuts. Very true. You might also like this quote from Esther Duval, an Anglican laywoman and expert on Benedict and his writings. She writes, Benedict wants us to be people of open mind. When he wrote the rule, he drew on different streams of the previous monastic experience and then expected his followers <clears throat> to read further from sources that were, strictly speaking, incompatible. In effect, he is saying that the truth can be expressed in divergent ways. He stands opposed to all forms of fundamentalism or polarization. He reminds me that I must be a disciple who will go on learning for the rest of my life. I was struck by the first word of the rule, which is listen. In the original Latin, the word is ausculta. As well as being a priest, I'm also a nurse, and auscultation is one of the most important skills in medicine. As well as listening to what the patient has to say about her symptoms, the doctor or nurse practitioner will auscultate, listen with a stethoscope to the patient's heart and lungs. By auscultation, she will find out what is going on where things are going wrong and begin to come up with a plan to remedy what is wrong. In a similar way, the rule helps us to, to listen, to auscultate to God, but also to listen to where things are going wrong in our lives. And the rule provides us with the framework, the trellis, to bring healing and wholeness into our lives. I'd like now to look at one or two sections of the rule and then at the threefold promise that monks and nuns make and see how they might relate to us. In the section on the role of the abbot, the father of the community, Benedict writes that they must know what a difficult and demanding burden they have undertaken, directing souls and serving a variety of temperaments, coaxing some, reproving some, 
and encouraging others as appropriate. They must so accommodate and adapt themselves to each one's character and intelligence. And here we see that Benedict recognises that his monks are not clones. They are all unique individuals that need to be treated as individuals. A message that perhaps we all need to learn. And perhaps none more so than governments and big corporations and businesses. It's interesting to note that what we used to call equality training is now called diversity training. For, in fact, we are not all equal, but we are all unique. Unique individuals with our own experience, and we all need to be treated with respect. This respect for the individual is echoed in the section of the rule on the reception of guests. Benedict writes that all guests who present themselves are to be welcomed as Christ, who said, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Proper honour must be shown to all. This section of the rule highlights Benedict's belief that our spiritual life must be lived out in the ordinary and everyday events of our lives. Benedict would have agreed with the rabbis who wrote that hospitality is one form of worship. Yet hospitality is perhaps one of the greatest challenges, not only for us as individuals, but for society and the country today. In a culture of violence and strangers and anonymity, hospitality has become the art of networking at parties, and we no longer relate to the people we live alongside, let alone to strangers. Benedict wants us to let down the barriers of our hearts to the other and to let down the barriers of our souls so that the God of the unexpected can come in. I'd now like to look at the, the threefold vow or promise that Benedictine monks and nuns take and that is at the heart of the Benedictine lifestyle. The vow is of stability, obedience and conversion of life. So what does the vow of stability mean? Well, at a superficial level, it means that a monk or nun is a member of a particular monastery. They may be sent to a daughter house of the monastery or even work alone for a period of time, but the monastery is their base for life. But stability is more than having a permanent address. It's about being rooted, grounded, not running away from difficult or painful situations, but dealing with life here and now as it is. It's also about dealing with ourselves as we are, warts and all. I remember once speaking to one of the sisters who belonged to the Order of Poor Clares, women in the Franciscan family who live a life of stability and enclosure, spending most of their life living, working and praying with the same group of women in the same convent. They say two women in one kitchen, but try having 12 women in one kitchen. Her community had been through a particularly difficult period with two groups emerging within the community who had very different views about how they should live out the vision of Francis and Claire in the 21st century. She told me that she'd been discussing the problem with a priest who suggested that they should split into two separate communities. But you see, he said, he has missed the point of our life. We live a life of enclosure, not to cut us off from life, but so that we can deal with the reality of life. 
The answer to conflict isn't running away from it, but dealing with it. It's the grit in the oyster that produces the pearl. Stability, however, isn't the same as stagnation. There will be times when we have to move on, when things will change. There are times when I have to, to acknowledge the soil isn't right for my plant to flourish. But that's different from a knee-jerk reaction to an event or situation. One of the benefits of the Unitarian community is that you are quite good at dealing with diversity and the conflicts that can, that can bring about. But the downside is that with a community of seekers, there's a danger that we'll keep moving on until we find the perfect religious community, the one that agrees with, with me. The desire for stability can be a great gift to us. So speaks someone who moved on a year ago. So perhaps do as I say, not as I do. Stability. Obedience. Obedience, again, isn't a concept that one automatically associates with uh, free thinkers. We are a community of free thinkers who value the independence of thought. But obedience in the Benedictine sense isn't just about doing what you are told. The root of the word comes from the Latin audiri, to listen, to hear the other person. But at the beginning of his rule, Benedict says, listen with the ear of the heart. It's not just listening to what people say, but listen with the ear of the heart. Listen to what's behind what they say. Obedience is about mutual listening, being open to the needs of others. It challenges us to see the bigger picture, not just to view the world from my own point of view. As some of you know, I was for a long time a Franciscan friar with a vow of obedience. And one, probably the only time that I kept my vow of obedience was, or I was challenged by the vow of obedience, was when I was obedient to myself. I was in charge of the training of young men coming into the community. And in my first year in the post, we had a surge of new candidates. It was nothing to do with me. It was the previous guy. This meant that we needed to begin their time with us at one of the larger houses. The most suitable was our monastery in rural Worcestershire. Now, when I had been there as a novice, I absolutely hated the place. It was the last place on earth that I wanted to live. But I felt that it was the right place for me as the novice guardian to live with the novices. And so I was obedient to myself and went to live there. And it wasn't as bad as I imagined. Of course, the second time round, I had a car and could get out. <laughs> of course, to listen to one another, we have to talk to one another. And all of us have a responsibility to speak out and to speak up. Obedience doesn't allow us to grumble behind people's backs. And we need to ensure that everyone in the community has a voice. St. Benedict in his rule advises the abbot of the need to listen to the youngest brother in the monastery, for often they are the ones that see a situation with fresh eyes. They see the reality of a situation that the rest of us are blind to. So perhaps obedience can be a gift for free thinkers. And the third part of the promise is, well in Latin it's conversatio morum, which is often translated as conversion of life, although it's often left in the Latin because really people don't know how to translate it. 
It's sometimes translated as living the monastic life, but it's about living it daily. It's perhaps another odd concept for Unitarians. Unitarians don't go in for conversion much. But this vow is is an acknowledgement that we don't always get it right. We can be rooted, stability. We can listen to one another, obedience. But we still get it wrong. So in the words of the old song, we need to pick ourselves up, dust ourselves down and start all over again. That's conversion of life. Someone once asked an old monk, what do you do all day in the monastery? And he said, oh, we fall and we get up, we fall and we get up, we fall and we get up. It's that getting up again which is important. And this this vow also implies that we both recognise and acknowledge when we get it wrong. Now, Unitarians are not really into sin very much or at least describing what, you, what they do as sinful. And that's because many of us have been hurt by the overemphasis on sin by other religious groups, and we value a guilt-free zone. But is our freedom based in reality? Are there times when we struggle with who we are and want to be different? Although there isn't a, a penitential right at the beginning of the services, I do believe that outside of the services, Unitarians are very good at acknowledging the reality of people's lives and helping one another to move on. But there is a danger that for those of us who don't have a safe space in which we can be honest about our faults and failings, we also don't have a safe space to be nurtured and healed. So we need to create stable, listening communities in which each one of us can turn around and start all over again. So as we move out from here into the busy week ahead, let's give thanks for this community and ponder on the ways in which the framework given by St Benedict 1500 years ago might still speak to and challenge us today. Amen. Now may the Eternal bless you and protect you. May the Eternal smile on you and favour you. May the Eternal befriend you and prosper you. May we all go in peace. Amen.